Welcome to Cryptonized, the show that interviews the crypto masters and their ideas on investing and the blockchain. And now here's your host, Mark Fidelman. Thomas Cox is known as the godfather of blockchain governance and a well-known figure in the EOS ecosystem. He's a crypto veteran and he's probably knows more about blockchain governance than anyone else I've met. So, Thomas, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure, Thomas. And before we begin, can you kind of give us, you know, 100 words or less, uh, your background and experience? Yeah, sure. I got uh, into technology in uh, 1989, working for Oracle Corporation, uh, and I did relational databases for many years. Uh, and then after that became kind of old, uh, you know, you design one database, you kind of design them all at some point. Then uh, I got interested in leadership and uh, followership and how do teams work and how can I, you know, train people to be better leaders, including myself. And uh, that was a fascination of mine that occupied me for about 15 years. I actually built out my own my own. Uh, curriculum on training uh, technical leaders. And then uh, the blockchain called. <laughs> I got, <laughs> got, got hired at uh, Block One. I was uh, employee number three at Block One LLC under Dan Larimer and David Moss. And uh, because I wasn't as technical as pretty much anybody else there, uh, I ended up getting the, the, the squishy job of governance. We had some thoughts on, on how we wanted to do it, but what it was exactly or how we were going to do it was very much up in the air. Um, and so I, I found it fascinating because it involves, you know, game theory. It involves um, economics. It involves tokenomics. It involves um, psychology, <laughs> political science. Uh, it's all over the place. First of all, I want to ask, uh, before we jump into governance and, and what's going on with EOS and everybody else, what was it like working with uh, Dan Larimer? Amazing. Uh, the guy is unquestionably one of the smartest people I've ever worked with in my life. You ask him a, a really tough technical question, and I swear I could see him <laughs> thinking in source code, and then he'd uh -huh. have to go to a whiteboard and try to turn that into words that someone else could understand. Uh, yeah. He's, and he was continually coming up with just elegant solutions to uh, problems that first baffled me, and then I could only think of very Rube Goldberg-esque ways to, to carry them out. So, uh, yeah, he, he, he thinks he eats, drinks, sleeps, and dreams blockchain. Nice. Yeah. I've heard some of the same things from other people that I've, I've talked to. I've haven't, I haven't met him of course, but uh, plan to um, have him on the podcast or meet him somewhere else and, and do a video. We also do videos as you, as you well know. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you, let's start from the top. Why should anyone care about blockchain governance models? The only reason to care about governance is if you want your blockchain to grow beyond uh, the proof of concept or the demonstration. If all you're building is a, is a POC, if all you're building is a demo, uh, governance is probably not that important to you because all you're really doing is a, a single user experience uh, with blockchain as an underlying technology. But as soon as you try to take that anything close to production or scale it up to anything meaningful in an organization, um, you run into the governance problem. 
which is uh, there's nobody in charge. <laughs> there's no super user. Uh, instead, it's a it's a committee or a group decision to do anything. Uh, and you need to have mechanisms for figuring out, so what's the question we're answering? Okay, what answer did we just agree to? Uh, and then how do we carry that out? Uh, and then proving that we carried out the thing we agreed to. And because everybody's sharing this single source of truth, everyone's very uh, protective of the blockchain. Any changes to it are going to be viewed with um, caution, if not outright suspicion. And what that means in the case of something like the EOS mainnet is uh, anything that wasn't either baked in the beginning, you know, provided in the source code, or uh, overwhelmingly agreed upon norm, anything outside of that was always greeted with the greatest suspicion, and we had immediate gridlock. And so, you know, something like, you know, Decred has a, a, a worker proposal system for paying for uh, developers to add useful things to the to the community. Um, several other systems have such a fund. We we contemplated one that it's in the white paper, but mm -hmm. we weren't able to build out any of the code or the mechanisms or the institutions, quote unquote. An institution is just like a a committee or a structure for for doing a thing. None of that was was provided in the source code. We figured we'll we'll, we'll just amend things afterwards because we'll come up with a. Uh, a referendum system and we'll get people to vote things in and uh, it just it never happened we could never get the community even to show up to vote let alone to agree on things so if you scale up before you build these institutions it'll be very hard for you to add them after the fact and if you want to look at a really challenging case look at ethereum mainnet uh, they don't have a governance system they don't have a referendum they don't have um, a 15 of 21 uh, prods power among block producers like EOSIO has uh, and so even if they could come up with agreement which in you know EOS it's clear what the agreement how you reach agreement is token holders vote on things uh, or they vote on proxies or they vote on block producers and then those people act on their behalf in the Ethereum case there's not even clear who the stakeholders are right. or, how, or, or how they signal things and I'm not exaggerating, that literally was, the, the Ethereum guys had a two-day uh, conference in 2018. It was right before EOS Mainnet was going to launch. It was like May or something like that. I was very excited. I was so looking forward to reading what they were going to say because I was, at that point, still certain that somebody out there knew a lot more than me about governance, and I just hadn't found it yet. Mm -hmm. I figured, well, this conference, man, this will shed a lot of light on this. And they came out of two solid days, uh, and their big takeaway was that they needed to figure out who their stakeholders were and how to how to find out what they wanted. And I thought, you have got to be kidding me. That's as far as you got. Uh, and that's when I realized that no one had cracked the, the code on, on governance yet. Uh, and so I, that freed me up to really do a lot of original thinking. And in that case, what that really meant was a lot of, of research into uh, political science, into the basics of uh, organizational design and structure, um, applied psychology, economics, economics, uh, things like that. And what you find is that governance really is a four-sided game 
uh, in that four-sided game is very well explained by a single book I recommend to everybody uh, by Eleanor Ostrom called Governing the Commons. Governing the Commons. Hmm. Uh, Ostrom, is last name is O-S-T-R-O-M. She won the Nobel Prize for that book. Uh, and she's one of the few women to get the Nobel Prize in economics, by the way. So uh, I mentioned it's a four-sided game. So the four sides are um, the code, the hard, the hard boundaries of your universe. In physical, right. it might be geography, um, or you know, it might be like a lock on a door or something. It's like something hard and physical. In code, it's the you know what is the cryptography or what what does the the running code do to you for you? Uh, there's social norms and, and forces, um, and then there's legal norms and forces and then there's market norms and market forces in between social legal market and code you have four different ways to influence uh what people do in the shared space and the shared space of course is this single blockchain that everyone looks at as their single source of truth we're not all looking at the same single source of truth we're not all on the same blockchain but if we are all on the same blockchain, we all do share a single source of truth. Uh, and that forces us to cooperate. And humans have been cooperating very successfully for, you know, a million years or more, depends on how far back you allow us to still be human. Mm-hmm. From the earliest hunter-gatherer groups, we're brilliant at cooperating. I mean, we've got no fur, we've got no fangs, we have no claws. Right. You know, by ourselves, we're pretty helpless and hopeless. But in groups, we're unstoppable. Um, and that's super, um, except of course, we're also very good at selling the group out and betraying the group and doing secret things that benefit ourselves while hurting the group, but we know and caught us. Um, and so people are constantly, uh, testing the boundaries of what they can get away with to, um, self-serve, if you will. And uh, in, a, in a blockchain context, if enough people are able to successfully serve themselves at the benefit of the group, the chain collapses, right? Because you can't, you're, you're no longer resistant to theft in, in, in gaming. And so if you do have governance, you can um, make important changes. You can upgrade the code. You can decide on new features. You can deal with a conflict. You can schedule an upgrade. Um, and do the change management required. If you don't have governance, you can't do any of those things. And uh, I was at a, a, a conference May of this past year. Yeah, May of 2019. And a guy from IBM was talking. He's the head of IBM for blockchain in supply chain. And his, uh, his name is uh, Stephen Rogers. And Mr. Mr. Stephen Rogers said, uh, Give a whole talk on, and never once you even used the word governance. So I said, "Hey, is governance important?" And I, I thought he was going to just like jump out of his shoes. He's like, "Oh my God, it's so important!" And he went on to say that without governance, your proof of concept cannot scale a production. In fact, he said that governance was the number one barrier to scaling proofs of concept up to production. Uh, and that makes sense, right? Because here you get your little proof of concept, and I'm going to show, "Hey, look at my supply chain. I can." track uh, supplier shipments and they come into a warehouse and they get split up in these areas and then they go off and be turned into finished products and I can track the lot. And so if a particular product, a particular source product, an ingredient turns out to be tainted, I can tell you all the equipment it was used on, all the customers affected, what lot numbers they should recall. 
that's super, right? Only works if all of your vendors and suppliers and customers are on the system with you. But if they don't have any way to uh, have a say in how the chain is run, why on earth would they agree to it? Or if they start yeah. to agree to it and then they find out that there's no way to actually make important changes, they're going to say, this is a clown show. I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend my people's time on this. Come back when you've grown up. Uh, and that's literally what we saw with Maersk in TradeLens. Maersk uh, put out TradeLens with the help of IBM on, on Hyperledger Fabric um, years ago. And they over a year after they launched it, they had not signed up a single trade partner, not one. Right. And it was only after they agreed to allow their trade partners to run uh, trust nodes, as they're called. In other words, uh, block producers in the mm -hmm. language. Yep. Only when they shared the power and said it's not going to be, you know, 100% Maersk nodes where Maersk gets 100% decision-making power over what's true and what's not true. It's like, well, of course your trade partners aren't going to want to put their business on your database. Not if they can help it. Um, yeah, it's against the ethos of, you know, what oh crypto blockchain is all about. So, uh, well, it's yeah. in, in any competitive business. I mean, can you imagine, you know, FedEx and I and, and UPS have to cooperate to ship the package? <laughs> right, and then one tough. of them says, yeah, you're going to run your business on my system. And they're yeah. going to say, yeah, no, we're going to keep doing things the way we are. Well, well let's shift to how you came up with the EOS blockchain governance model. And that was, you know, you had 21 block producers. How did, how did you come up with 21, first of all? And then, you know, describe this whole process, this yeah. internal process of coming up with that. Right. So uh, I, will, I will pause and say that all of the smart decisions were made by Dan. And okay. most, of the, most of the errors are mine. <laughs> all right. I doubt that's true, but uh, continue on. It feels that way. Uh, and I'm fine with that because it's only two mistakes that we learn. Uh, but, you know, Dan faced a lot of pushback on, on the number of block producers, and he'd done, you know, Steemit and BitShares previously, and Steemit has, I believe, 100 uh, that take turns making blocks. And, you know, in Ethereum or uh, other proof-of-work systems, it's an infinite number of block producers, uh, and your odds of making a block are, you know, proportionate to the hash power you bring. It's probabilisticer if you will. Uh, and so why would you limit the number down from infinite? And the answer is when you have an infinite number of block producers possible using proof of work, among other things, you're very slow. Uh, and the proof of that is that, you know, Bitcoin does what five transactions a second and Ethereum does 15 or 20. Uh, and if you're content with that, yay you. Um, but if you want to speed up, you, you may want to rethink that and say, Hey, can I, reduce the total uh, universe of potential producers or proposers of blocks to a smaller number in a way that doesn't harm me while it improves my performance. And obviously, if you had a single block producer, the answer is no, that's not decentralized. And two is probably not enough, and three is probably not enough. Although you can actually configure ESI at a run with one, two, or three, or any, any number of CPs. Uh, and 21 was the result of some math that Dan had done that combine several things. One is how much decentralization is enough for censorship resistance uh, and how many candidates for BP can people keep in their heads and actually judge. And if you're looking at hundreds and hundreds of candidates, let's say you're, you're doing steam it again and you got a hundred winners 
and two, three hundred candidates. Who's going to sit and look through that field of candidates? I'm not. I'm not going to look at a hundred. That's a lot. I'm not going to look at fifty. Most people can't do three or four when there's you know eight people running for or twelve or however many for right now that the, the uh, Democratic party is trying to pick a nominee to run for president and we're recording this there's a dozen candidates i couldn't name them and but they've been in the news for months and i couldn't tell you what you know how to pick amongst them really i've got my my preferences maybe but i couldn't tell you how to map your preferences onto those candidates uh and if and yet people are spending millions of dollars trying to communicate that to us and then you, you translate that over to some blockchain that may be a, a small part of your life because you have a life, uh, but you're you're a token holder and you're going to have to have a say in, in who makes the blocks. You know, make bigger numbers actually hurts you. Uh, not in that not respect, for, not for cryptographic reasons, but for psychological reasons, having yeah. people's attention. And see, so we introduce things like proxies because a proxy can spend more time on things, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So. There's, there's trade-offs to be made. Okay, so, I mean, it's very interesting how you came up. So, was it Dan that came up with 21, just said this is yeah. kind of the maximum? Okay. Yeah. And the, and the minimum to get to a point where people felt like, okay, it's, it's decentralized and there's enough governance here to kind of move the chain forward. Is that kind of the, yeah, the balancing enough, act? Enough, yeah, there's enough division of power amongst enough warm bodies that you're unlikely to have... Um, meaningful collusion uh, is if certain other uh, assumptions also hold sway about independence, which have since uh, started to become eroded. I'm sorry to say, yes, yeah. that is starting to see some, some collusion among block producers. And right. We could get into the history of how that came about, but. Well, I was actually going to go there because, you know, obviously yeah. I'm a huge fan of EOS, uh, but I, you know, there are allegations, you know, in, the, in this model that um, let's just say there's some Chinese block producers that people feel are colluding. I have no way of knowing if that's true or not. I don't know if anyone can, but what's your opinion on that situation and how did it, you know, what's the history of it and what do you think the resolution is going to be? Um, well, the, the, the challenge in any of the proof of stake or delegated proof of stake systems is uh, a, it's getting people to vote at all, getting enough people to vote. And then secondly, how do you prevent the block producer candidates from purchasing votes by offering to share their block awards? Yeah. Well, that's a good know, point. Right? It's like, hey, that'd be, you know, vote for him and you'll get a really solid BP and he'll, you know, write some interesting software and it'll help everybody. And I, I won't do any of those things, but if you vote for me, I'll give you cash. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like some of the candidates uh, that we currently have running for president. But well, and that's a classic difference between public good and private good. Yeah. Right? The other person is running on I will create public goods that benefit everybody. The other guy is like oh, I'll help you personally. And when enough people um, stop contributing to the community and start self-serving, the community collapses. And. Uh, that's where Eleanor Ostrom's book actually comes in because she looked at um, hundreds and hundreds of real world examples of communities that in, in her case, it would have to do mostly with agricultural uh, commons, fishing or uh, wood cutting or irrigation. I mean, things that really had a big impact on your life, grazing rights, um, 
where if you screw it up, you know, you overfish and the fish go away. Well, you feed your kids. And I mean, you, you know, controlling the fishing is crucial. Overfishing is extremely dangerous. But everyone's got his own boat. What are you going to do? Uh, and classical theoretical economics says, well, you can't be done. You know, you either have the government has to take it over and do government allocation top down. It must be a pure market system. Everyone owns shares in the in the commons, and we allocate it through a market mechanism. And apparently, um, the the regular human beings who actually live in these, in these situations didn't get either of those memos because none of them do that. Uh, what they've done, and it's a, it's a pattern that repeats itself again and again and again. They clearly, each group must have come up with it themselves, unless they. It's hard to imagine how they would have communicated with each other. Uh, and I'm going to pause here and say every single community she studied had been stably managing their common pool resource for over a hundred years, and in one case, over a thousand years. Now you compare that with the life, the successful life of a you know a modern day blockchain system. We're, we're lucky if they've been going four or five years. Yeah, lucky. So it's exactly. with, the st with the stability of a hundred plus years up to a thousand. It's like, yeah, I think I want to pay attention. I want to see if there's something here to learn, right? So, uh, what what Ostrom found is that um, you've got to have a, a very clear delineation of who's in and who's out, right? You can't just have any random person showing up with a fishing pole and start to fish. If the community has a let's say a large lake where they where they live and they fish, um, they can't allow outsiders to just randomly show up and start taking their fish from them because. Um, that person's not going to respect the system or the boundaries or the rules. Uh, and in fact, you can't let any random person move into the village and start fishing, right? There, there has to be some sort of onboarding or acceptance process. Uh, otherwise, you get to overfishing very rapidly and you deplete sort of resources and people starve. Uh, there has to be clear rules that everybody buys into, and everybody has to have a say in the changing of the rules. Because if they can't tweak the rules, um, they stop believing in them. They stop feeling fair. If they can tweak the rules, if they can see how their input affects the rulemaking, then they're they're willing to stay bought in and continue to obey. Um, every successful community she found also had some sort of inspection mechanism and some sort of sanctions. Every single one, and the inspection could be done by a third party. It could be done by you know, uh, we draw straws and somebody has to be the inspector for the next six months. Just one of us gets picked at random. Could be that each community hires their own inspector who has to meet certain criteria. There's a, there's a bunch of ways to do the choosing. But there's always an inspector and there's always some sort of um, punishment or sanctions mechanism. And she found that the sanctions needed to be, uh, they could be really small, actually. Uh, but they needed to be quick. And if you had e easy, quick sanctions and some sort of inspection mechanism, and, and lastly, some sort of dispute resolution mechanism that was uh, quick and inexpensive. You know, you both take your problem to the council of three elders and you each talk to the council for, you know, a day, and then they go off and deliberate and they come back and they ask you questions. And on the third day, they, they render their decision and it is final. You know, you don't even know what the decision is. You don't even know what the problem is. But that's that's the process, right? And the process has been that process for, you know, 200 years, and that's the way we do things. 
that, you know, there's nothing in there that's provably unfair to either side. Mm -hmm. so, right. And one of the things that, uh, uh, in his book, uh, on the strategy in game theory, um, Schelling, Thomas Schelling, of Schelling point fame. Schelling points out that when people are setting up their dispute resolution mechanisms in advance of actually having a particular dispute, they're very likely to uh, set up fairly fair mechanisms because they don't actually know in advance which side of a dispute they're going to be on. Am I, the, am I going to be always be the plaintiff or am I going to be the defendant some of the time? And so people are actually pretty good about um, you know, in, in the abstract or in advance, uh, setting things up pretty fairly. But if you if you have a dispute first and then you try to pick a dispute resolution mechanism, you'll never get there. Because as soon as anybody proposes anything, everyone says, "Well, yeah, well that that doesn't advantage me in this current dispute." Uh, and so you you've got to get people to buy in upfront in advance. Which, by the way, we did not do successfully in the EOS mainnet. We, we had articulated our governance. We'd set out a dispute resolution mechanism. Uh, we had a, a, at least the beginnings of a system uh, of inspection and potential sanctions. Um, but we did not have broad community buy-in, in part because we did not have contact with the majority of, block, uh, of token holders who turned out to be uh, Chinese. And yeah. got all of our outreach in English and, you know, kind, kind of anywhere we could find people in Europe, South America, Australia, uh, even some U.S. hobbyists who didn't legally own any tokens but were interested in the project. Right. So why, why couldn't you or why, couldn't, why can't the community kind of vote out these bad actors or the, the people that feel like yeah. the, they're colluding? Um, because there's no there's no will to do so. The majority of the votes are either controlled by people who don't care enough, who are just detached from it. They've bought tokens and stuck them in an exchange, and they don't yeah. tell the exchange how to vote, and so those tokens go unvoted. Or there's uh, you know so you have a, you have a minority of tokens who show up to vote who have an effective majority of those votes that are cast. Right. Um, and then, you know, those people are voting their own self-interest, uh, which right now is, is loot loot the chain, uh, take the cash, and if the token price crashes, well, this is one of many investments I have, and at least I got some cash out of it, which to <laughs> me is absurd in, yeah. in short-term thinking. But people are very good at short-term thinking. Think of, of any addict you've ever met. Think of any alcoholic you've ever met. To them, long-term thinking is like this afternoon. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think the short-term uh, quote-unquote investor uh, is, is the same way. They're, well, I don't think they're investors. They I think they're speculators. But thank you. Yeah, they're just that's a much better. Word. Yeah, I think right. that's what that. But but that's what's kind of built this initially. Is you had all these speculators about speculating about tokens, and that's what built it. Now we've got to move into more of this long-term thinking that you're talking about, and you know, truly. Yeah. You know, taking crypto and utilizing it uh, based on you know some of the, the things that were espoused in the original Satoshi letter and and have them built on by people like you as uh, and Laramie. Yeah, yeah, and, and also um, you know on the on the business side, if you get away from public mainnets, which are a very hard problem to, to crack, and I think that Bitcoin and Ethereum are, have probably done the best to 
to uh, inhabit the, the public permissionless mainnet space. Um, I don't know how other people who are creating public mainnets are going to navigate this problem. But um, the problem with Bitcoin and Ethereum, of course, is their, their governance is entirely informal and very cumbersome and slow. Uh, and we, you know, Ethereum 2.0 was announced two years ago, and they said they'd have it in two years. And then this year, they said they'd have it in two years. In two years from now, they'll probably tell us they'll have it in two years. Uh, it's just painfully slow to move anything. Uh, and so the thing like the WAX system, which is a much more sophisticated uh, model, um, one that's been informed by watching these other struggles, uh, I'm very optimistic about their design. But for me, uh, as soon as you get into um, business use cases where it's multiple companies, now it's all known actors, right? You can have a, a consortium agreement that's legally enforceable in courts of law as your overarching source of legitimacy. And then the blockchain governance just has to be how do we coordinate technically uh, and then you might turn around and you actually use the blockchain for things like your consortium votes or your consortium membership or consortium dues paying or whatever. Because, yeah. hey, it's a shared ledger. Why not? Um, but these problems about, you know, self-dealing uh, tend to go away, right? Your consortium blockchain doesn't have a token. It's tradable on an exchange for cash that can be, you know, stolen from each other. Uh, you may not have a token at all, or it might just be used for allocating system resources. Um, and I'll give you a great example of uh, a consortium blockchain that has excellent governance, even though their governance model is very uh, simple. Uh, and that is an outfit called Chronicled out of San Francisco. Chronicled created something called Meta Ledger, which is used now as of November 2019 to track uh, pharmaceuticals from the, the manufacturer at the case level all the way through to their final use, including on the secondary market. So we have somebody buys a case and they have extra and they don't need it. They want to turn around and sell it to somebody else who wants it. You don't have to return it to the manufacturer. You can just sell it on as a, an unopened carton. You know, if you want to be the seller and somebody else wants to be the buyer, both parties have to use this, in this case, blockchain-based system, to go and check and say, hey, this case with this serial number, is it real? Did it really come from a known manufacturer? Um, is this source person really the last person to have it? Is this next person the next an okay person to get it? Because the last thing you want is magical cases of OxyContin showing up out of the ether, parenthesis, from you know scam manufacturers who are right. selling fake product. Uh, you want to you be provably back to the source. Uh, and, yep. and you want to not have it go off into the black market either. So if somebody says to you, hey, you bought 10 cases, you used nine, you sold one, who'd you sell it to? Uh, some guy with a handful of cash. It's a bad answer. Right. Yeah, bad answer. very bad. Uh, yep. And so uh, they, they're using a blockchain to, to do that. And it's in response to a federal mandate. Um, so, And they've managed to sign up so many players that 90% of all pharmaceuticals manufactured in the United States are being tracked on their system. And they've worked at uh, technical, technical details with SAP so that the SAP-based pharmaceutical uh, ERP systems are working directly with this uh, blockchain system. So it's very well handled technically, uh, and they've got a 
really um, consensus-based and uh, uh, well-functioning governance system, which works for them because they have so few players. They've got a few huge makers of uh, product. They have a legal agreement you sign when you join. Uh, and everybody wants the same thing. There's no benefit to being more compliant than the next guy. You want to be compliant enough to not be in trouble, and then you're done. You want to go on and you know run your business. And so regulatory compliance isn't a place to you know steal tokens and make cash. It's a place to have an accurate single source of truth so that I can get on with business. And that is a fabulous use case for blockchain. It's got nothing to do with crypto, but it's got everything to do with governance. Because without governance, they can't evolve the, the, their network. All right. Well, let's move some of this governance, and it's part governance, part not, but let's move it to something that happened recently on the EOS blockchain, and that was this whole issue with Rex and this, uh, very, I think it's kind of a brilliant marketing tactic, but they did an airdrop. This, uh, I can't remember the name of the company, but they did this airdrop on EOS, and it just basically shut the network down to a crawl. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on, on what happened there, and um, you know, how, how do you see it's going to be resolved? Um, right. Well, uh, I'm not going to pretend that I know all of the details of that case, but, but in a sense, it doesn't matter because you can say the same thing about any network. It's one player overutilizes a shared resource and harms others. And that's true of someone who overgrazes a pasture, overfishes a lake, um, introduces crypto kitties on Ethereum. How does your system handle spikes in traffic and how do you handle uh, overuse of a shared resource? But and, is there a uh, governance model, Thomas, that could be I mean, can't the, the block producers or some sort of governance team kind of say, look, you're, you're violating, not violating, I don't know if there's a violation of terms yet. I haven't dived that deep into it, but can't even they kind of say... Even if it's not a violation of terms, it's certainly a violation of expectations. And, you know, having the network slow to a crawl um, doesn't please anybody, uh, including probably the airdropper, you know, and a, a more socially acceptable approach might have been to do the airdrop slowly over the course of a couple of days instead of one massive pass that that, that kind of half crashes the system, right? So what you can simply say is, look, that may or may not have been a violation in terms of service, but it was a pain in the ass to everybody. (laughs) So so we would like to, uh, you know, come up with a way to make things be better and different and better in the future. Uh, and so here's what we're thinking. You lay it out. Uh, and the, the good news for EOS Mainnet is they are able to have uh, changes enacted uh, not, not too slowly, right? It is just 15 to 21 block producers who have to agree. Uh, and whether or not there, there's collusion among the voters, whether or not there's collusion among the BPs uh, is, is an important but second, separate conversation. Um, can those 15 actually create change? And the short answer is, yeah, absolutely they can. It's obvious they can. We've seen them change it. They changed the Constitution. They changed um, uh, three or four other things. They put in, you know, the, the whole Rex thing that was uh, late-breaking. They added uh, the, the referendum system. Those were all post-launch. Uh, and so I think you could make a case that the EOS mainnet is uh, quicker to evolve 
than any other public name that I'm aware of. And certainly quicker than anybody else with uh, a comparable sized user base. I'm not going to include, you know, systems that only have 40 or 50 members. Well, I found this conversation fascinating. Um, I can't wait to listen to it again because you've gone through so much about blockchain governance. And there's so much more, uh, I'm sure. And I'm going to get some links from you, I think, in the show notes where, you know, if you're setting up a blockchain, and you need a governance model. I mean, how do you begin? We're going to start with the book, Governing the Commons book. I think that's what you recommended we read, but I'm sure there's some other things that you could recommend. I actually um, have an entire reading list, and I'll send you a link. Send it to me. List. Yeah, yeah totally please do. do. My final question I ask everybody is, in 100 words or less, if you could invest a fictional 100000 in one or two cryptos or more, what would they be in line? I would put 50% into Bitcoin. And I would put 50% into a, just a basket of other things. Uh, and I would spread it very widely just to diversify my, my holdings and my interests. Uh, I'd certainly have something in Libra if, if and when Libra ever comes out. Uh, I'd have some Ethereum. I'd have some EOS. I'd have some Decred. Some, maybe some DAI. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, just to have some exposure to all the different uh, theories and approaches and philosophies in, in the network. In the, in the broad uh, network of networks, if you will, in the broader blockchain ecosystem. Because I have no way of knowing who's going to win. Yeah. And I don't, I, and I, you know, if I could predict winners, I'd be much wealthier. So what I can do is diversify and, and have an opinion and be curious and pay attention. And I know that once I own some tokens, I'll pay more attention. Right. Yeah. Oh, you're, 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 you're focused on it. Uh, so yeah. I, I just want to thank you, uh, Thomas, for joining the podcast. And, um, you know, I, if you're listening and you enjoyed this podcast, please write a review for us in the Apple Podcasts and Google Play apps. Um, we love your reviews, and uh, it helps others choose this podcast. We're bringing other luminaries into this podcast, and we're kind of going through a single topic, maybe two, and just uh, educate you on, you know, something like blockchain governance. I've you know, I haven't met somebody that was kind of an innovator in, in blockchain governance. It's fascinating to see how this, this began. So, Thomas, uh, thanks again, and uh, look forward to meeting you. Yeah. Hey, last thing I would do, this, uh, I suggest people, if you want to get started playing around with blockchain governance, a, a great place to start is actually my company's uh, free tier. If you go to strongblock.io, you can have a free single-node blockchain up in three to four minutes. Uh, and it's network accessible, so you can invite your friends in, make accounts for them, share the access. And we've already started to put into our marketplace, and in coming weeks and months, we're going to add more and more. We have, we have a marketplace where you can go and install pieces of code and, and bits and bobs that are useful and interesting. But we're adding more and more governance elements into that marketplace. So things like a system to track uh, voters and voting. Uh, and we're going to add in you know, uh, a system of, you know, actually, I, what, I've, what I've dreamed up, and you're the first person I've told this to, uh, is I've dreamed up uh, three or four different really simple beginner models for governance that uh, can be used to evolve into higher orders of governance later on and are good enough for uh, at the development phase so that if you do have to scale up to production, you, you've got the pieces already in place to do that. And that's an area of, of significant innovation that Strongblock is committed to, and that's why 
we've got me full time as chief governance officer and why we talk about ourselves as having um, programmable and adaptable and configurable governance is we want to make sure that when people do build a proof of concept that the path is ahead of them it's paved it's ready to bring in just enough governance to get them to the next stage and that they're never stuck wonderful so i'm going to put that in the show notes strongblock.io and the rest of the things that we talked about and the playlist uh, or the reading list actually because yeah. i i, I got to get on it and and start getting more involved in this uh, because it's one of my weak areas. All right, uh, Thomas, thanks again and um, look forward to meeting you. Thank you. Take care. A reminder that we are not financial advisors and anything we talk about or refer to on the show should not be considered or construed as financial advice. We encourage you to do your own research and come to your own conclusions.